Welcome to another live edition of JM Sunday right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm your host, Matas Weingast. It's the 11th of July, <coughs> excuse me, 2021, second day in the month of Av 5781, and uh, we are here with you during the nine days format, one week from today, from one week from last night, it's Tishabov. So today we're going to be presenting two lectures by Rabbi Beryl Wine on the destruction of the first temple and the destruction of the second temple. Outside of our studios right now, 73 degrees, going up to 79, and a low of 74 overnight, partly cloudy during the day. Jerusalem, it's sunny and 89 degrees, going down to 69 degrees. And Dafyomi, brand new, Sechta started on Friday, Sukkah. We're in DAF 4 right now, today. Uh, we're going to get to Rabbi Wine in a few seconds. Hope you all had a wonderful Shabbos and a wonderful week. And we thank you for uh, joining us here this morning. Uh, so that's where we are at right now. Uh, our thanks to Rabbi Wine for, uh, for allowing us to present these lectures regarding... Tishabov and this time period. So we're going to go right to the first one, the destruction of the first temple. Rabbi Beryl Wine here on JM Sunday. The destruction of the first temple, which is the event that uh, I'm going to discuss with you tonight, has to be viewed not only in a political and diplomatic and uh, military and national sense, but it has to be viewed in a uh, cosmic, uh, spiritual sense, which is how Chazal, how our rabbis looked at the matter, and therefore were able to lend to it a uh, an aura that uh, not only made it uh, special, if one could use that word, or made it uh, something to be remembered, but they uh, pointed out that it was a change in nature. It's not just a change in uh, in society or in political power in the world. It's not the destruction of the Roman Empire, the fall of Rome. And it's not uh, the uh, destruction of Berlin. It's not just that the Jewish people were defeated, but that it is compared to a... Uh, change in all of nature, a change in all of the world. And we'll see that in certain uh, certain ideas that the rabbis uh, have told us that I wish to share with you uh, because of the fact that uh, it has, uh, I believe, a uh, clear insight into uh, the Jewish view of history generally and certainly the Jewish view of the uh, destruction of the temple. The facts of the matter are, relatively speaking, simple enough. 
the uh, Novi Yermio had warned all of the years that the Jewish people were living, uh, the kingdom of Yehuda was living in a false sense of security, that somehow they felt that they would be able to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, against the power of Bovel, and the Jewish people would be able to sustain such a rebellion. They deluded themselves to think that Egypt uh, would protect them. They said, uh, much as you hear in the news today, that Egypt needed Israel. There, though a great power needs a small power. Small powers like to think that way, but in the reality of uh, real politic, uh, the great powers don't need the small powers at any time. And uh, they deluded themselves to think that Egypt uh, would uh, rather fight Bovel uh, north of Jerusalem than to fight it on its own borders. Uh, Mitzrayim was not willing to do anything like that. Mitzrayim was perfectly willing to allow Bovel to destroy Yerushalayim and destroy the kingdom of Yehuda and to uh, attempt later to come to its own accommodation, which it was never really able to, but they were not willing to spill one drop of Egyptian blood on behalf of the kingdom of Judah. The other delusion was that somehow Nebuchadnezzar would forget about them. He would allow the rebellion to go unchecked. He would allow the rebellion to uh, take its natural course and that the... uh, he was, bu- he was busy with other things, with more important things, with bigger matters. And therefore, he couldn't be bothered by such a uh, small event as a little country uh, that had previously been a puppet of his, now asserting some sort of rule. It was the same type of delusion, if we want to put it in, modern, uh, uh, in a modern frame of reference, uh, Czechoslovakia in 1968. What difference does it make to the Soviet Union if uh, the uh, system in Czechoslovakia changed, if it became more relaxed, if uh, Dubček took power? What what was the problem? Or Hungary in 1956? Or Poland today? Uh, There is no reason to to fear any of that. And because of that, so... uh, they felt certain that Nebuchadnezzar would not expend the personal and national energy necessary to put down the rebellion. Uh, throughout the history of humanity, uh, small countries that have mounted such rebellions have always had that in the back of their mind, that somehow they weren't worth the effort of the large country to put the rebellion down. We'll see that in the time of the Second Temple, after the destruction of the Second Temple, when Bar Kokhba made a, uh, an initially successful rebellion against the Romans, he also uh, deluded himself to think that the Romans weren't going to send extra legions and make a great effort to put it down. It just wasn't worth it. History has shown us that that is a, uh, a profound error. And the king of Bovel was not allowed, would not allow Yerushalayim to slip out of his orbit. And he would not allow Tzitkiyo to breach his oath of fealty to him. And he came with his whole army. And he came to put down the rebellion. And he came to put it down with a vengeance and with a cruelty and with a finality. 
uh, not only to teach the Jews a lesson, but to knock out of the minds of anybody else in his kingdom the idea that somehow you could cross Nebuchadnezzar, you could cross the Babylonian Empire and nothing would happen. Well, he was going to make certain that you knew that something was going to happen. So the facts of the matter are that in the spring of that year, uh, I've discussed with you uh, on a much earlier tape at the beginning of the history series, a question of the dates, the, uh, the dates that are involved here. But most historians agree that the year we're talking about is the year 586 before the Common Era. And in the spring of that year, Nebuchadnezzar came from the north and he invaded the, the outposts of Judah and by the early part of the summer, his army had encamped around the city. And his strategy was the time-honored strategy of the, of, uh, of the uh, stronger army, a siege and attrition, just to wear the enemy down. And he brought his siege machines, he brought the lines of the siege closer and closer, and uh, in the Tanakh it is recorded that on the ninth day of the month of Tammuz, the walls of the city were weakened sufficiently that the Babylonian army was able to invest the walls and come into the city. The second uh, Khurban, uh, the walls of the city uh, buckled on the 17th of Tammuz. And the fast day that we commemorate is that of the second temple, not of the first temple. In fact, after the destruction of the first temple, when the Jews were able to return 70 years later and rebuild the temple and rebuild their government, so even Tishabov was canceled. Even the fast day of Tishabov was canceled as a national fast day. It was uh, restored with a vengeance, unfortunately, after the second temple. But the ninth day of Tammuz, which is not a particularly joyful day on our calendar, is not the day of the... Uh, of the dis of the walls in the first temple, it's the day of the walls being uh, destroyed in the second, bre breached in the second temple. So he uh, his army arrived, and the under the command of Nebuzaradan, his uh, general, who was uh, a fearsome person, re his reputation for cruelty and butchery went before him, and his army took hold in the city, and within a month they had destroyed all pockets of Jewish resistance. And the Jews who could fled. Uh, tens of thousands died in the uh, siege, in the uh, hunger and pestilence, and by the sword and by fire. Uh, thousands of them fled. Many of them attempted to flee to Egypt, to the south. And many of them were allowed to flee by the Babylonians who then just waited for them and herded them together into giant slave camps uh, where they would transport them into the exile into Babylonia. Our rabbis tell us that uh, on the ninth day of Av, <coughs> the, uh, at sunset, of the beginning of the ninth day of Av. Again, here we're talking of uh, of the first temple. 
the uh, Babylonians purposely set fire to the building. Now, uh, the second temple was even more fireproof than the first. But the first also, to a great extent, was a building of stone and of marble. And uh, it should not have burned easily. But apparently the accelerant that was used to set fire was of such a nature that it got the fire so hot that even the stones burned. That the building collapsed in the fire. And it burned the entire day of the ninth above as well. Our uh, tradition is, according to the Talmud in the Gemara Tainis, is that the first base of Migdash was destroyed um, uh, the fire began on Motsoi Shabbos. In other words, Tishabo was on a Sunday. And that the fire began uh, at the, the end of Shabbos, that uh, as night fell, and that the uh, Beis HaMilish burned all day Sunday, and it was uh, destroyed completely. In its destruction, uh, many of the artifacts of the Beis HaMilish were captured and many of them disappeared. The Talmud tells us, and we read in the Megillah of Esther, that Ahasuerus had inherited when the Persians, the Persians and the Medes conquered the Babylonians, they inherited the museums and the treasure houses of the Babylonians. And amongst the booty that they inherited were kalim of the Beis Amigdash, were utensils of the Beis Amigdash. Cups, uh, goblets, uh, uh, all sorts of gold, uh, all sorts of gold, uh, golden objects which they preserved. These uh, items are uh, referred to the Kalim Mikalim Shonim, it says in the Megillah. Then we read those three words with the a melody of Eicha to indicate that those were the utensils that were used by Ahasuerush and he used them for the banquet that he invited all the Jews to attend and because he had to have kosher uh, food and kosher utensils he took the utensils of the temple and then you had the irony of a generation of Jews uh, participating in a banquet honoring Ahasuerush the Persian emperor by drinking from the utensils of their own Beis Amigdash, which was destroyed and the utensils were captured. One of the many ironies of Jewish history. In any event, the, uh, the uh, destruction of the temple was complete and the destruction of the government was complete and the destruction of the country was complete and the Jews were taken away into exile. That's the story, that's the simple historic fact of what happened. But uh, to uh, say that is not to understand what happened. <coughs> and certainly not to be able to deal with it in the uh, context that Jewish history and that Chazal have always dealt with the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. That is, as I mentioned before, in a cosmic fashion. Let me give you a, a few ideas that I want to discuss 
and uh, I think it'll help make the matter clear. First of all, you had a complete uh, unbelievable thing happen that God destroyed his own house. That God, so to speak, if one could use such a phrase, God contributed to what in effect was a uh, denigration of God. Because uh, the uh, Beis Amigdash was uh, in existence for over four centuries. It was world famous. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Everybody knew, knew that the Jews were different. Everybody knew that the Jews were monotheists in a world of paganism. And here the uh, God of monotheism, so to speak, allows himself to be defeated by the pagans. He allows Nebuchadnezzar, who is a uh, pagan ruler and the representative of all that is evil, uh, to somehow triumph and burn down God's house. Now that's one of the great questions in history. That's the same type of question as uh, the Holocaust uh, raises. It's the same type of question that that Eov, that Job raises in, on a personal level. How does God let that happen? Where is God to defend himself? <clears throat> and no matter what the Jews were, and we're going to discuss, I'm going to discuss with you the, uh, the, the negative attributes of the Jewish people which led to the destruction of the temple. But no matter what they were, they weren't worse than the Babylonians. So why should the Babylonians win? Why should God allow his own house to be destroyed? Now that is a uh, tremendously difficult philosophic matter to deal with. And the Churban made that matter real. Now the, one of the reasons, you see it in the words of all of the commentators to the uh, Tanakh, one of the reasons why the Jews never took seriously the prophecies of Yeshayahu, let us say, or Yirmiyo, or Micha, or any of the other prophets who uh, time and time again foretold the destruction of the temple. It isn't that, that it was a surprise to them. For uh, at least 150, if not 200 years, uh, they had been constantly warned that it's coming, that the temple will be destroyed, and the Jewish government will come to an end. You're all going to go into exile. They had been told that the words that appear in the Chumash and the Tochecha and the terrible predictions of the troubles, that those words are literally true. It's going to happen. Why didn't the Jewish people believe it? Well, first of all, the nature of a person is that uh, we are, even the worst pessimist is by being human, an optimist. And... Uh, the Jewish people thought that it was perhaps hyperbole, it was uh, exaggeration, it was poetic license, or it wasn't going to happen to them, you know, it's going to happen a hundred years from now, it's a little like the national debt. We all know it's going to plot, but as long as it doesn't plot while I'm around, you know, so uh, who cares? You know, meanwhile, I'm driving my car and I have my house and, you know, and America's America, so, yeah very hard to sell people on the fact that they have to preserve something for their grandchildren or for the next generation or, 
people aren't going to stop driving their automobiles because of the ozone layer, because a hundred years from now it's going to be hot and the, and the country will be... No, people don't think that way. The mere fact that we are mortal, and we know we are mortal, and we know that our mortality is limited uh, at the outside to a century. So if I tell you, you know, in 350 years from now, there's going to be a disaster, and no one will be nervous about it. Because I'll comment that that was uh, one of the reasons why Noah didn't have much of a following either. He said, in 120 years, they're going to be the mob. Oh, in 120 years, they'll be the mob. You know, 120 years, Chicago Cubs will win the pennant. I mean, that's not a problem for us. It's not relevant to us. And therefore, people don't listen. So even those that were willing to listen to the prophets felt that it's not going to be now. Yeah, there's no question that the Churman is going to come, but it's not going to come now. But the main reason why they didn't listen is because they said God cannot afford it. So to speak, the Jews had God blackmailed. How can God do that? We're the only people he has on the world. And we at least officially subscribe to his brand of monotheism. And we at least are, uh, you know, we're the, we're the best that he's got around. It could be, uh, you know, it could be that we're only C plus, but it's, but it's better than nothing. And this temple has got not only God's name on it, his presence, Kaviochel, is there. Every day there are regular miracles. In the first temple, the miracles were apparent to all. The, uh, the, uh, the candelabra never was extinguished. The uh, fire on the altar always crouched like a lion. Uh, all sorts of miracles. Uh, and in Pirkei Ovis, we read of the miracles that exist in the second temple. So God is there. So how he, uh, God isn't, you know, God isn't going to be counterproductive. He's going to allow his building to be destroyed. And therefore, to a certain extent, we can do whatever we want. Because what's he going to do, right? It's like the, uh, the son that's working in his father's business. So the son can embezzle and cheat and not show up on Monday mornings and do a lousy job and everything. Because what's the old man going to do, right? The, the name of the company, you know, it's Jones and Son. What's he going to do? Going to kick him out? I mean, what? He's got him. Well, that's how the Jewish people felt about God. They felt that they had him. And because of that, therefore... Uh, the destruction of the temple was a great philosophic shock to the Jewish people. And it, uh, in a uh, very perverse and uh, different fashion, uh, you have to understand that the destruction of the temple and the survival of the destruction of the temple was a triumph of the spirit of the Jewish people. that the Jewish people didn't walk away completely, uh, that, uh, they, that they looked at it the way they did look at it in terms of self-improvement and in terms of continuity and survival is a testimony to the great faith of the Jewish people and to their deep philosophic insight because on the surface, uh, lesser people would have been more than happy to write the whole thing off and forget it and which would have been the end of the Jewish people. 
which if the rules of history were followed would undoubtedly that undoubtedly would have happened so that's the first point you know, we have to realize the uh, cosmic philosophic problem raised now we were dealing with a different God until now you know we always knew that you know that God meant it and God punished and God did this and God did that and you didn't trifle with God but we never dealt with a God that would burn his own building. And our rabbis say it in their inimitable fashion. You have to listen to the words of the rabbis in the Talmud, not just what they say, but how they say it, the nuance. The Talmud in Brochus tells us that what does God say every day? What does God have to say about it? Which is always the question of the rabbis. Everything that happens in this earth so we know what the New York Times has to say about it, and we know what CBS News has to say about it, and we know what we have to say about it, and you know what the guys in the mikvah Friday afternoon have to say about it, and the guys Shabbos between the parshas, you know, and we know what everybody has to say about it. But the ultimate question is, what does God have to say about it? What does he say about it? So the rabbi said that he said, Oy lebonim, woe to children, shabi avonoseim, that because of their sins, that I destroyed my own house and I burned down my own temple. So the rabbis did not avoid the issue. They met it head on. God destroyed his own temple. God burned down his own house. How can you make somebody do that? Well, that gives us an understanding of the power of sin. It gives us an understanding of the dimension of rebellion that exists within man. And the rabbis therefore compared it, uh, not in an unlikely fashion, but compared it to the destruction of the world at the time of the flood, of the marble. Which was really the clue to God's, and is the clue to God's behavior. So there also, how did God, it says in the Torah, that God said, Nichamti, uh, the, the, the Torah expresses itself in such a term that God expressed himself that I'm sorry I created man and who needs the world and you know and let it rain what do you mean let it rain I mean you I mean, you set the whole thing up that the world is so complicated it's so uh, the, the, the laws of physics of nature of ecology of biology of botany it's just mind-boggling. What do you mean, let it rain? God said, let it rain. That's it. We'll continue with the Rabbi Wine right after morning chizuk. Uh, I want to remind everybody that today uh, at uh, 4 o'clock at Maimonides Park, you can come and cheer the Israel baseball team as it heads to the Olympics. It will be playing... FDNY, that's today at 4 o'clock, Maimonides Park, 1904 Surf Avenue in Brooklyn. You can purchase tickets at the box office. You can go to brooklyncyclones.com or you can call 718-507-TIXX for uh, tickets to that. And that again is today at uh, 4 o'clock at Maimonides Park, 1904 Surf Avenue in Brooklyn.
73 degrees outside right now on the 11th of July, 2nd of Av. We're in our nine days format with the Rabbi Barrel Wine. And we'll get back to Rabbi Wine following Rabbi Goldwasser. At this time, each and every Sunday through Thursday, we present to you Rabbi David Goldwasser, Rabbi Goldwasser's words, Lazech Nishmas Harav Yosef Alevi, and Lazech Nishmas Esther Basar Yosef Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We read in the Parsha, Vaidaber Moshel Roshea Matos, Hashem Yisbarach spoke to the heads of all the Matos, Libnei Yisrael, to the children of Israel, Lemor, saying, This is that which Hashem has commanded you. Our Chachomim asked the question, Why do we read Parshas Matos, Ben HaMetzorim, during the three weeks between Shivasu Batamuz and Tishabov? Rav Yaakov Meir Shechter comments, the reason that we say Kol Nidre in the beginning of the Yom Adin on Yom Kippur is because there are a lot of people that didn't do tshuva because of Yeush. They simply gave up. The individual thinks, how could I do tshuva on such a mice of an Avera? I've sinned too much. The Mesil Sisharim, written by Ramosha Chaim Lutzato, also asks the same question and answers that this is the greatness of tshuva. It's like a nether, it's like a vow. Just like if a person made a vow and then he begins to ask about his vow, he can't do it. Whatever he accepted upon himself, he sees that either it's physically too difficult or there are obstacles in his way. At that point, he can go to a basin and they will be mater nether. When the nether is released, it is nekarlamafreya. It's as if the nether was never made at all. Retroactively, it's taken off. Tshuva, repentance, operates in the same way. It is nekarlamafreya. Retroactively, it uproots the incident, the sin. Therefore, when we come to the beginning of the Yom Adin, the beginning of Yom Kippur, we say kol nidre. We realize that just like if a person made a nether, it is nekarlamafreya, it's removed retroactively. We should never give up on doing tshuva, because by doing tshuva, we remove the sin from existence. According to this, we can well understand why we read Parshas Matos, which speaks about nedarim, about making vows during this time. It's because these days, the days between Shivasubatamos and Tishabov, are days of tshuva. All the Svarim say that Tamus is the Rashi Tevos, it's an acronym, Zumane Tshuva Memash Mishimu Boim. The times of tshuva are coming. When we read this Parsha, it gives hope to even those that gave up on doing tshuva. We should all be encouraged by the concept it's like Nakarlamafreya, that our sins have retroactively been removed. With this, we can do Tshuva Shlema and receive the finest brachos, both materially and spiritually, from heaven. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. Thank you very much, Rabbi Goldwasser. We will get back to uh, Rabbi Barrelwine, as I mentioned, in just a uh, 
a minute or so. Uh, coming up at uh, 8 o'clock, uh, news from Israel with uh, Hannah Julian. Uh, and uh, that will yeah, that'll take place around 8 o'clock. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned, the uh, Israel national bas- baseball team is playing against the FDNY today at 4 p.m. So uh, you can go and uh, see that game and root on the um, root on the team. Uh, purchase tickets at BrooklynCyclones.com or uh, on uh, or at the box office, or you can call 718-507-TICKS. It's sponsored by McCard Disability Services. We're going to go back to Rabbi Beryl Wynow, speaking about the destruction of the First Temple, and uh, we'll have the news from Israel, Hannah Julian, at uh, about 8 o'clock this morning. Coming up, the world is so complicated. It's so, uh, the, the, the laws of physics, of nature, of ecology, of biology, of botany, it's just mind-boggling. What do you mean, let it rain? God said, let it rain. That's it. It's not worth it. Without man, it's not worth it. There's a purpose to the world. The purpose of the world is man. Without man, who cares? Well, that was a lesson. That's a lesson that's burned into the psyche of man. And now there's a lesson for the Jewish people. God doesn't need a temple. God doesn't care about his reputation, so to speak. And God doesn't care about his house or anything else. to be if the Jewish people behave in such a fashion that they are really not my people and they take me for granted and they take history for granted and they they're not they're not at all attuned to what's happening in the world so then you know so who needs it so then it's only sticks and stones and bricks and mortar that's all destructible so what And that's a uh, profound, profound revelation to us. Not only that God could do it, he did it. Not only did he do it once, he did it twice. Not only did he do it twice, but in lesser ways, he's done it many times to us. That, That should give the Jewish people some pause. Because we, uh, you know, I always have this feeling, I don't mean to be political even though I am, but, you know, people say, uh, never again. What? We're not going to let it happen. Those are, you know, that's whistling past the graveyard. Because it's not up to us, never again. What guarantee, what, what, if you, if you gave every Jew in the world an Uzi submachine gun, and I'm certain there are now enough Uzi submachine guns in circulation that you could do that, it wouldn't stop never again. We all know that deep down in our heart. And we know that man can destroy himself and destroy the whole world, doesn't take much. In our time, it takes very little. It takes two two fingers on two buttons, and it's all over. But that's an, an awesome realization. To live in such a dangerous world, especially if one is a Jew, to live in such a dangerous world. 
but it is the Churban more than anything else that has impressed upon Jewish history and the Jewish mind that reality. And because the reality is so frightening, we always tend to ignore it. We always tend not to deal with it. I think that that's part of the uh, mystique, if I can use that word, regarding Tishabov, is the fact that Tishabov, it's not just a day of mourning, it's a day of such terrible reality that that's what causes the mourning. famous Rebbe of Kotsk said that there really are no fast days on the Jewish calendar. He says the two fast days of Tishabov and Yom Kippurim. So he said Yom Kippur, who wants to eat? Everybody is in, in, such a spiritual person on that day, so who wants to eat? And Tishabov, he said, who can eat? Right? If you realize what it is, you have no appetite. That's really what Tishabov is. Tishabov came, the Churban came to point out to you what, you know, what the reality really is. And not what the, uh, delusions that one can convince oneself of are. That's, that's really not, not, that's really not productive for us. So that's one point. Another point is that, <coughs> The rabbis saw that the Jewish people themselves caused the Churban. It's not a hard and fast rule in history that the Babylonians have to triumph over the kingdom of Judah. Now, uh, good old uh, Karl Marx and his buddies in the 19th century sold western civilization amongst all the other garbage that they put upon us the idea that there are rules of history inflexible inexorable rules of history and that the individual under no circumstance can change those rules and that we are just pawns now if you think about it that justifies you know sending 50 million people to the gulag and it justifies starving a hundred million Chinese uh, because it's uh, you know it's the wave of the future. You can't stay in the way of progress. It's got to happen. And if it's got to happen, then you know I'm just helping it happen. I'm not doing it. It is uh, the the idea of the Western world uh, in the last hundred and fifty years that there are historic forces that create these cataclysms and holocausts and disasters really acquits us of all responsibility. That's exactly what everybody, you know, it's not my fault. Right? I only was taking orders. I'm only doing what history says. And that's what allows us to be such murderers. Because there is no individual guilt or responsibility. We are all acting under a force. Like the weather forecaster that predicts a tornado or a hurricane, he is not guilty when the tornado comes or the hurricane comes and kills innocent people. He, uh, you know, he's a scientist. He told you it was going to come. So too the nature of the view of history is that all of these things are inevitable. It has to happen. The big have to devour the small, the weak have to fall before the strong. 
and that there are forces in history and civilizations rise and fall and that's it. And that in effect, if we uh, follow the logic of Western civilization to its illogical conclusion, which a lot of people do, Western civilization is doomed. <coughs> the United States and the Western world generally is no different than Rome or the Holy Roman Empire or the English Empire or any other major power that has existed in the world. The most we can look forward to is being a second-rate country. And that's if history will allow, allow us to survive. But otherwise, we, we may even disappear. Wouldn't be the first time. And that, I think, goes also to explain part of the innate pessimism which exists in the Western world. The Western world is a very pessimistic place. If you have any doubts about it, just read the newspaper every day. It's just a very sad, pessimistic place. You know, now it's a, it's a hot summer, so you know, the, 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 so they all say that in 200 years the polar ice caps will melt and goodbye. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But you know, the 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 trend of thought is always pessimistic, and that's built into us by this uh, feeling that the age of reason and enlightenment gave us. The Torah came to say the opposite. The Torah has a different view of history. History can be altered. History can be changed. It can be changed by one man. It can be changed by one act. It can be changed by one people. What happens is because we are the ones that caused it to happen. We are not guiltless observers uh, that are caught up in some great mob scene, which is called history. We are the participants, we are the players, we're the authors. We can do whatever we want. And therefore the Churban Beis Amigdash, the destruction of the temple, occurred because of the behavior of the Jewish people. The Jewish people brought it upon themselves. They could have prevented it, they could have prevented it even at the last minute they could have prevented it. But they chose not to for whatever reasons. In our rabbi's list as the three cardinal reasons for the destruction of the first temple, the three major sins of society, paganism, the lack of faith in God, the lack of, of any allegiance to, a, uh, to the higher authority, to the creator that has fashioned us. Paganism uh, need not be translated only in terms of idols. It's not just uh, Zeus and Apollo. You know, paganism uh, takes on many different forms in society. Uh, wealth, greed, uh, all sorts of injustice are all reflected in the ideas of paganism. Because we're not responsible to a god. And it, paganism also represents the fact that God is like man. And the Torah came to say that man was created in the image of God. So in all the mythologies of all the pagan religions in the world, from the eastern to the western to the northern religions, the gods behave like uh, men and like bad men, like spoiled, rich, bad men. They fight among themselves. They kill each other. They steal. They steal each other's wives. They 
they they do terrible things because the mythology has portrayed the God as man. And the Torah came to say that man has to make himself as God. Mahu God is merciful. You have to be merciful. God visits the sick. You have to visit the sick. You have to try and imitate God. The great concept of imitatio dei, of imitating the Creator. So that sin, that was a terrible sin, doomed to destroy the Jewish people. Then the second sin was Shvichas Domin, that it was a society that placed little value on human life, which is another uh, horrendous view of, uh, of man, which in our time also, you know, human life, life is cheap. And we're inured to it. We become immune to even, the, I count, like I knew I was going to lecture tonight, so today. So in the two and a half minutes that I prepared, I listened to the uh, to the news. So in the city of New York today, there were eight murders. Eight murders and five people uh, died on Sunday in a fire that was set that they think was that was arson. Yeah, so yeah, nothing. I'm, I'm waiting to hear the baseball score. This guy's telling me about eight guys that got you. One of us hired me, you know. Why is it my business? Because we're immune to it. We are absolutely immune to it. In human life. And if that's true by us, in the Western world where we uh, at least uh, pride ourselves on some sort of civilization, in other societies it is far worse. I once read a statistic in a National Geographic magazine that in Calcutta, India, there are 300 people that die every night in the streets. And if you multiply that by 365 days, my math is not good, but it's a big, big number. And yeah, that's it. That's the way it is. And the acceptance of that type of situation, the acceptance of, uh, they, we, they just finished, uh, I don't know if they finished, but they're, they're taking a breather in the Iraq-Iran war, right? million people killed in eight years, you know? And this, uh, this uh, madman that's running Iran, see, he says it's the most bitter pill of his life that he has to stop the killing. Like to keep it going further. Why? Because that's that's because human life doesn't mean anything. Causes mean more. Everything means more. In the Torah, nothing means more than human life. And the instances when human life can be taken are very limited, and have to meet certain very exacting standards. And uh, because of that, therefore, when human life is taken very Easily, so then and again is a reflection on society. And finally, our rabbi say the third sin was that of sexual immorality, which again is the <coughs> the loss of understanding of the role of people in the world and of the role of the human body and of the necessity to. Uh, appreciate the grandeur of the person instead of the 
instead of making out of the person a, what, a little more than an animal. So when they had that, those three things together, and they had it together for a long time, it isn't that it just happened. And those were the ills of society about which the prophets complained over and over again, and the Jewish people turned a deaf ear. So then uh, the Chorban was inevitable. Not because it was inevitable due to historic forces that were at work. It was inevitable because of the behavior of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people can and did do something about it. At least in those matters there was some improvement. In the Second Temple, for instance, paganism was not as popular, murder wasn't as popular, and even immorality, which is the most popular of all, was not as popular. They did do something about it. The famous statement from Ralph Cook uh, that the British, uh, the British uh, Governor General, or High Commissioner Lord Stars, said to him that uh, he uh, he doesn't see any improvement in civilization over uh, the thousands of years. So uh, the uh, British uh, General had an office that overlooked the valley of Gehinom, the valley of Hinnom outside the walls of Jerusalem. And Rabbi Cook pointed out to him, he said, you see in that valley, he said, the uh, 26, 2700 years ago, my ancestors took children and burned them to the idols. Took their own children and burned them to the idols. He says, that we don't do anymore. So there is some improvement. It may have taken us 2,700 years, but at least that lesson we learned. And the uh, idea, therefore, that man himself could do something to improve himself, has to do something. But the Churban made that real. The destruction of the temple made that real. Another idea about the destruction of the temple, which is, <coughs> excuse me, again, part of this idea is that a change in nature occurred after the destruction of the temple just as a change in nature according to many of the commentators the Ramban and others occurred after the Mabel the Ramban says uh, in the Chumash we see that man became carnivorous animals became carnivorous after the Mabel the nature of human beings changed the nature of nature changed well, after the base Amigdash also, Chazal say, for instance, that the blue sky was taken away. There is no blue sky anymore after the Churban base Amigdash. Can't see really the blue sky anymore. And Rabbi say very strongly that uh, certain pleasures in life, including physical pleasures in life, the marital relations, etc., the rabbis say that from the Churban Beis Amigdash on, that was taken away. The enjoyment of it was taken away. It became uh, less enjoyable, more mechanical. And the rabbis in their wisdom said that the only ones who retain the joy of it are those that do it illicitly. But it was taken away. It doesn't exist anymore. The rabbis tell us that certain tastes in fruit and vegetables, and that's before the managed to have the tomatoes taste like the cartons that they come in. But 
just doesn't, the taste was taken away. The world changed. That was the message. The churban, therefore, was not just a churban for the Jewish people. The world changed. God, so to speak, withdrew. And that's how the rabbi saw it. Previously, God had a house and he lived there, so to speak, right? It's, uh, it will take a bad example, but uh, something that perhaps will give us some focus on the matter. Let's say you live on a block, and on that block lives... Uh, a great wealthy man, a very powerful man. So the block is a, it's a different kind of block. First of all, you know, they, they plow the street first in the snow, and the garbage guys always come, and the, uh, and that everybody takes care of their lawn because there's such a nice lawn next to it. Well, you live in Tobacco Road, right? Everybody's a slob, so after a while it gets to you too. Well, let's, uh, again, as a bad example, but that's how the rabbi saw it. You know, their bonus show, and God was in the neighborhood, right? He lived there. He lived in Jerusalem. He lived in Eretz Israel. He lived amongst the Jewish people. He lived in the world. So if he lived in the world, so it was a different world. It had to be a different world. A world where you could uh, every day see a physical manifestation, Kaviochel, of God's presence. And now God withdrew. God, they moved out of the house. Wrecked the house, left. So the block is not the same. And it's never going to be the same. Until and unless, you know, you're able to rebuild that situation. Now rabbis therefore said that the second temple never equaled the first temple. The same feeling never came back. Things were different, <clears throat> physically different, and <clears throat> or have I say uh, the Jew never fell the same. Little things. Our rabbis also say people were different. It says, Botlu Posku Anshe Amonum Yisrael, it says. The Gemara in Sota. There were no longer trustworthy people, right? As long as God was around, so man also. You could find you could find trustworthy people. But after the Khurim Baisamigdish that that was became very, very difficult to find. The rabbis say that uh, song, music changed, became inferior. There was a type of glass crystal that existed called Schuchis Levono. We don't know what that is, but it was a t apparently a rare type of crystal that of glass that they knew how to make, and that existed, and that 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 disappeared. And they had a type of popsicle of made out of wine. They called it Yain Korush, frozen wine. That was the delicacy of the world. And that also disappeared. And the rabbis didn't come here to describe the menu. They didn't come to tell us, you know, these little... They came to tell us that it was a different world. 
and because it was a different world and everything has to be seen in that light as a different world also the access to God was different uh, previously there was an easy way out so to speak right? if a person sinned so he brought a uh, the, the, the method of service to God through animal sacrifices through the base amigdish was foolproof there was a base amigdish there were koanim there was a ritual a person could cleanse himself a person could come close to God he could get the appointment now we have to rely on prayer prayer is a much more difficult route it requires a great deal more effort on the part of the person and even when the effort is there you have no guarantee that the call is ever completed you have no idea Nishalma Purim Sfaseinu our lips become the sacrifice they become the method of reaching God so on one hand that's, a, that's exalted but on the other hand it is a much more difficult route to travel and our rabbis therefore compared all sorts of tragedies to the Churban Beis Amigdash. That's not an accidental comparison. Our rabbis say, for instance, that if a, if a person, God forbid, loses a spouse, that that's Kiyom Shechor Beis Amigdash. Why? Because life is never the same afterwards. The person will go on living, the person may even remarry, everything, but it's never the same. That's gone. Our rabbis tell us that, uh, uh, that that if a person loses a child, so that's 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 a scar that never heals. People live afterwards. People are productive. People even laugh, but that but that never goes away. It's never the same again. Our rabbis tell us righteous people depart the world. So that's comparable to the churban beis hamikdash. Again, what's that idea? It's never the same. Churban Beis Amigdash means it's never the same. It's not, you know, it's not losing the Super Bowl. It's not even losing money. It's, it's never the same. And therefore that, that was one of the lessons so to speak, that the Churban had to impress itself upon the Jewish people. Our rabbi saw that in relationship to uh, uh, to the creation of the world itself. I, I, I discussed with you in the uh, previous tapes when I uh, discussed creation that the uh, rabbi said that God created worlds and destroyed them, created worlds and destroyed them. Uh, the world that we're in now uh is not necessarily the first world and it may not necessarily have always looked this way but that there was a process of destruction and once that destruction occurred it was never the same again things changed and they changed irrevocably and the ultimate comparison the rabbis make the ultimate comparison the rabbis make is to original man to Adam Arishon to original man original man lived in the garden of Eden he was God's protege so to speak 
and he lacked for nothing and he lived forever and all human frailties were removed from him and he knew nothing of the mortal condition which is endemic to all creatures and then by sinning he was exiled from the garden he was exiled from the garden God used the language Ayeko where are you which is the same word as Eicho which is the word regarding the Churban so the rabbis compared the two and they said that the Churban to the Jewish people the destruction of the temple vis-a-vis the Jewish people and their history is to be seen in the same fashion as the exile of man from the Garden of Eden regarding the human condition. You have a completely different condition now. And now you have a condition of uh, of having to wrest a living from the recalcitrant soil. You have to sweat for everything that you have. That you're mortal with with a knowledge of mortality that always terrorizes you. Problems of life are real. That's what the Churban Beis Hamikdash did for the Jewish people. It, not that it, uh, it was a defeat. It was a complete change of nature, complete change of how of how the world, uh, how the world functioned, how to live in that world now, and therefore. Uh, and therefore we operate differently. A rabbi said that uh, a great deal of knowledge was lost. We don't have the intellect we once had. Nitla mimeno, the words of the rabbis, our ability to decide things. Uh-oh. One of the reasons why uh, we never have criminal justice outside of the Sanhedrin, because the Sanhedrin required... Uh, Required the presence of the temple in in terms of criminal justice. There's no temple, then we don't have the wisdom to uh, to deal with those matters. It's just just beyond us. So uh, we are talking here again about this fundamental difference between the world that had a temple and the world that didn't have a temple, and all of that came to rest uh, when uh, when this happened finally our rabbi say that uh, Yermio as long as Yermio stayed in the city the temple could not be destroyed the power of one righteous person again we we hear that often in the uh, words of the rabbis that for instance the uh, mobble the flood on the world uh, as long as Methuselah was alive, as long as Meshuselah was alive, so then the flood didn't come. He died. God waited till the Shiva was over, and that was it. As long as Yermia was in the city, so even with all of the crime and all the sins and all the weaknesses of the Jewish people, couldn't do it. He was enough to protect. But when he went out of Yerushalayim, the words of the Psikta are Kivan Sheyotso Yirmiyom Yerushalayim. The moment Yirmiyom left the city, 
Yorad al-Malach min ha-Shamayim, the Malach came down from heaven, the heavenly force came down and split the walls, and said, Yavo asonim v'yichnesu l'beis sh'adono eno b'socho. Yirmiyah's not here, God is not here. If the owner of the house isn't here, the robbers can come and plunder it. Totem season. So again, we have the idea that the Churban is dependent on one person, on a few people. And the, uh, the presence of a few people can prevent it. I have mentioned to you many times the fact that the rabbis point out to us that the city of Zdom was destroyed because of the lack of ten righteous people, not because of the presence of three million evil people. If there would have been ten righteous people, then the God can suffer, so to speak, the three million evil people. But when there are not righteous people in the town, when there isn't a minion, so to speak, when nobody around is good, so then, then it's open season, right? Then God's protective hand, which guides everything in history, uh, that is removed. When that's removed, then everything is removed then everything is expendable, then it makes no difference. Even God's house is accessible to the enemy. Finally, the point I want to make is that the Jewish people were able to realize uh, that the temple could be rebuilt, if not in brick and stone, and not in the same way, but it could be rebuilt by themselves. Now that the temple was destroyed, then God could still find a place. He could find a place in the hearts of the Jewish people. He could find a place in their synagogues. He could find a place in their houses of study. He could find a place in their behavior. They would build an imaginary temple until the time would come when God in his own fashion would rebuild again a physical, real temple for them. But the ability to build an imaginary temple, that uh, to a great extent is much harder and a much greater accomplishment than to build a physical temple. It's much easier to build a building than to build what's in the building. It's much easier, uh, you, uh, we, we see that regarding education. We have some of the finest school plants in the world, but it's very hard to produce one human being from that plant that it should, be, uh, that, that it should work. It's easy. There are beautiful, beautiful houses of worship all over the world that are just glorious to behold. But it's hard to build an imaginary house of worship. It's hard to build a place where uh, where God is really welcome and where man really can accomplish. And that idea, the destruction of the temple, brought home to the Jewish people. And the Jewish people, therefore, uh, again, to their everlasting credit and to the greatness of Israel, have been able to rebuild the temple in miniature, in a different fashion, in different communities, in different circumstances over the centuries and all different continents in the world. But the central idea, that remained. That gave them courage and strength and it gave them purpose. And it spelled the difference between Jewish history and the history of the rest of the world. No other people could or has sustained such a blow and not only survived it, but were able to uh, to carry on with their mission 
and to carry on with their uh, set program of accomplishment the way the Jewish people did. So that's why this destruction of the first temple has to be seen as really the watershed in Jewish history. Nothing is the same afterwards as it was before. But on the other hand, new opportunities, a new set of circumstances arose for Israel, which the Jewish people were able to take advantage of and through that build themselves and guarantee their continuity and their survival and their eternity. Thank you, Rabbi Wine. We'll get to uh, the next segment of uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine's discussion. It'll be on the destruction of the Second Temple. Uh, I concur with uh, listener uh, Lee on the app that uh, could listen to Rabbi Wine for uh, for a whole day, <laughs> constantly. Uh, definitely is um, something that. Uh, you know, he's he's very uh, he's just an excellent lecturer and teacher and uh really you know gives us a lot of the history and by explaining all this the history of the uh first temple period and then the second temple period what happened it gives us i feel a greater understanding of why it is that we uh, we observe the three weeks in the way we do and especially in the nine days, the way we do, uh, it's not just a uh, a function of saying that uh, we we have a period of mourning. We understand the period of mourning. Uh, we understand what to do during the period of mourning. It's a question of uh, why do we really do it, and what is the reasoning behind it, and the feeling behind it. We're a drop late with the news from Israel. Apologies to Hannah Julian, but Hannah uh, Julian, Middle East news analyst and senior correspondent at JewishPress.com, joins us uh, every Sunday morning to bring us up to date on the latest happenings in the state of Israel. Good morning, Hannah Julian. Good morning, Matas. There's a lot going on in the Holy Land today, so let's get to it. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett said this morning in opening remarks to the weekly cabinet meeting that his government is focusing on two main issues regarding COVID-19. The first is the issue of slowing the virus. The next is maintaining Israel's economy and the daily routine of her citizens. Bennett said health officials are considering how to reorganize large events to prevent mass infection. He also said health officials are working with the education minister on preparations for the new school year and for the upcoming holidays. Bennett also announced that Israel has reached an agreement to move up the shipment date for the next batch of Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. The next shipment was going to take place in September. But Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla has agreed to send 200,000 doses on the 1st of August. The earlier shipment makes it possible for Israeli adults to receive their first shot even after this weekend because the next dose, which comes in three weeks, will arrive with the new batch. Another 700,000 doses will arrive in the coming months due to the swap deal arranged with South Korea. In other news, the cabinet extended the term of Shin Bet director Nadav Argaman by a month. Argaman is expected to serve until the appointment of a new director for the domestic intelligence agency. Officials are also watching the economic crisis in Lebanon, which is tearing apart that country across Israel's northern border. The prime minister noted that Lebanon is on the verge of collapse like every country that Iran takes over. The IDF is on alert after a joint operation with Israel 
police stopped smugglers from bringing millions of shekels in weaponry into the country. The incident took place at the cross-border village of Rajar. The suspects were trying to smuggle in 43 handguns. Beginning today, the official Prime Minister's residence will be available for use by Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. He said, however, that his family is not going to move into the residence. It will only be used for official events and meetings. Former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his family moved out of the residence late Saturday night after having lived there for 12 years. On the good news front, the IDF Home Front Command delegation involved in search and rescue efforts at the site of a collapsed condo building in Surfside, Florida, returns to Israel today. The commander of the delegation was given the key to the city as a token of thanks for their help. A quick look now at the weather. It's not quite the sweltering nightmare taking place in the western states, but it's pretty warm. High temperatures today in Beersheba were at 95, dropping down to 70 this evening. In Jerusalem, the high only reached mid-80s, low tonight in the 60s. And to compare with Death Valley, the high today in Elat was around 106. But the low is going to drop into the low 80s there as well. The rest of the week looks pretty much the same. Bright sunny skies and hot, hot, hot. Keep cool, everyone. Stay safe and stay healthy. Have a great week and a Chodesh Tov. I'm Chana Julian for JM Sunday. That's our news from Israel. Thank you, Chana Julian. I'm not sure if she'll be joining us on uh, uh, next Sunday, which is Tisha B'Av. We will be here and we will be playing uh, some more recordings of uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine, appropriate for Tisha B'Av. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure. We'll have to coordinate with Hannah Julian during the week to see if we'll get an update next week. Uh, we are going to continue in a moment with Rabbi Wine. I want to remind you again, the Israel national baseball team plays against the FDNY today at uh, Maimonides Park, 1904 Surf Avenue in Brooklyn at 4 p.m. You can go to the box office and get tickets. You can go online to brooklyncyclones.com. Or you can call 718-507-TIXX. This is presented by McCord Disability Services. It is 20 minutes after the uh, second hour, after the top of the second hour, 8.20 here in uh, New Jersey, the 11th of July, 2nd of Av. And uh, as I mentioned, next week will be uh, Tisha B'Av. Unless circumstances change before then, which we always hope. We're going to go back to Rabbi Beryl Wine. The destruction of the Second Temple is the topic of this next lecture. Uh, we'll have uh, we'll hear part of it until the end of the show this morning in about 40 minutes. Here is Rabbi Beryl Wine. The destruction of the Temple and the uh, subsequent destruction of the national entity of the Jewish people occurs, as I pointed out to you last week, uh, in a significant fashion because of the warfare amongst the Jews themselves. The warring groups in Yerushalayim destroyed all hope of victory. And the fact that they burned all of their supplies, their grain... only uh, facilitated the uh, coming destruction, the victory of the Romans. In 
in the midst of all of this uh, carnage and quarrelsome, bloody civil war between the Jews, the leadership of the Jewish people passed <coughs> on a permanent basis from the hands of political leaders to the hands of religious leaders. And the main religious leader at the time of the destruction of the temple was the famous Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, whom I discussed with you last week, who was yet a uh, Talmud, a disciple of the great Hillel. The Talmud tells us that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai for 40 years was a businessman, for 40 years he studied Torah, for 40 years he led the Jewish people, he led the Sanhedrin. Uh, Yochanan ben Zakkai uh, served together with Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel. Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel was the Nasi at the beginning of this great civil war. But Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel disappears in the war. We don't know exactly what happened to him. Uh, most uh, authorities say that he died during the war. It's not clear whether he died of natural causes, or he died because of the war. But Rav Shimon ben Gamliel, uh, to a certain extent, abdicated his powers of being the Nasi to Rav Yochanan ben Zakkai. We find in documents of the times that Rav Yochanan ben Zakkai signed together on the documents with Rav Shimon ben Gamliel. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was not a descendant of Hillel, uh, was certainly the most influential religious leader of the time. The Talmud tells us, the famous story in the uh, Gemara Gitan, the Talmud tells us that when Jerusalem was under siege, there, were, uh, there was an agreement between the zealots and between the Romans that every night the dead would be allowed to be taken out of the walls of the city to be buried. And that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai had himself uh, placed in a coffin and taken from the city in order that he should uh, be able to cross the lines and come to the Roman general Vespasian. The Talmud tells us that the uh, Jewish guard, suspecting a trick, uh, actually stabbed the coffin, ran a sword through the coffin to make certain that it was a corpse there. Yochanan ben Zakkai miraculously survived, and he came before the Emperor Vespasian, and he uh, greeted uh, Vespasian, the general, and informed him that Vespasian was going to be the emperor of Rome. Now, this was because of the fact that after the death of Nero, the uh, Roman uh, situation fell into chaos. There were different competitors, as you can imagine, for the leadership of the empire. And in fact, in one year, in the year 69, there were four different people who occupied the throne, the imperial throne of Rome. 
And in the midst of this chaos and instability, it became obvious that a strong hand was needed. The Roman Senate turned to Vespasian, who was the leading general of Rome, and Vespasian uh, ruthlessly uh, disposed of his competitors by uh, refusing to allow any of the grain ships from Syria, Egypt, uh, and North Africa to sail to Rome, thereby starving Rome itself and starving Rome into submission. And the, because of that act, the Senate recognized his, uh, that that was the man they were looking for. He was uh, ruthless enough to meet their tastes. And they sent him a messenger that he was elected the emperor of Rome. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, through uh, the hand of God, naturally, uh, beat the messenger there by a few hours. And he informed uh, Vespasian that he was elected the emperor of Rome. Uh, Vespasian originally planned to execute Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, but when the messenger arrived, that he was elected the emperor of Rome, the custom in the ancient world was that the bearer of good tidings was rewarded, the bearer of evil tidings was punished. And uh, therefore in his elation over the fact that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai had been the one that told him that he was elected the emperor, he rewarded him by granting him three wishes. Now we have two conflicting versions as to what the original three wishes were. The uh, Babylonian Talmud tells us that the uh, Jewish rabbi asked the Roman emperor for A, that the family of Ram Gamliel, Ram Shimon Gamliel, the family of Hillel be spared because the Roman custom was uh, when countries were conquered that the royal family or the leading families were taken to Rome and executed. So he asked that he uh, spare the family of the Nossi. The second wish was, it's very uh, interesting to see what he asked of him. The second uh, wish rega was regarding the uh, great rabbi, Rabbi Tzodok, who was one of the famous holy men of the era and who was aware of the coming of the destruction of the temple and according to the Talmud uh, fasted on a regular basis for 40 years. And because of that, naturally, he was very ill. He suffered from uh, physical illnesses and so he asked for medical attention for Abit Zodok, that the Romans would provide the necessary medical attention. And then the third wish, the third wish was the famous statement, Tain li yavne Let me have the, fa the academy, the yeshiva at Yavne, and its wise men spare the Talmud Chachomim. We will move the Sanhedrin, we'll move the yeshivas out of Yerushalayim, and we'll move to Yavne, and uh, we won't, uh, we will not mix in any political or military matters. Those are the three wishes according to the Bavli. The question arises, 
uh, why didn't he ask for something grander? Why didn't he ask that the temple be spared or that Jerusalem be spared? So the, the Bavli is of the opinion that he knew in advance that such a wish would not be granted because that would destroy the whole uh, purpose of the campaign of Vespasian. And he knew it was not within his nature to grant such a wish and therefore he didn't want to waste it. Uh, the Yerushalmi seems to indicate, the Jerusalem Talmud seems to indicate that... He did ask him, and he was refused. He asked him to that to spare Jerusalem, to spare the temple, and that the Roman refused it, but granted him three other wishes. Uh, the uh, <clears throat> the Roman general Vespasian was thrilled because he thought that this old Jew really didn't know what to ask for. Right? He could have asked for Florida. He could have gotten something out of it, and here he wasted his opportunity on what are essentially meaningless uh, achievements. But the Roman did not realize that he was being had, and that the victory of Rome would be nullified because of the fact that the family of Hillel would live yet and would provide spiritual leadership for the Jewish people and thereby guarantee that their way of life would continue uh, by keeping Rabbi Tzodok alive. So the power of one righteous man to influence and protect the generation is enormous and by allowing the yeshivas to rebuild themselves at Yavne that was the key to Jewish survival throughout the ages. And the, uh, the Emperor Vespasian thought he was giving him nothing. In reality, he was giving him everything. And that became the, uh, the, uh, the uh, refuge of the Jewish people. Now, how they would survive the awful blow of the destruction of their nation, of their government, of their uh, temple, a complete change in the uh, Jewish world, a tremendous adjustment, all was made possible because of the fact that they still had their religious leadership intact and also that they had their uh, religious infrastructure through Yavne was still functioning and would grow strong and would certainly outlast Rome as it has outlasted uh, all other uh, civilizations and tyrants in the history of the world. In any event, Vespasian granted the wish and Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai journeyed to Yavne where he established his academy, where he established this uh, great school and uh, clandestinely the Talmidei Chachomim from all over Eretz Israel came to Yavne. That became the center of learning, became the center of the uh, of Jewish existence. Our rabbis call Yavne Kerem B'Yavne. Kishenichnesu Raboseinu L'Kerem B'Yavne. When our forefathers entered the vineyard at Yavne. So the Talmud explains that it was called a vineyard because of the fact that they sat in semicircular rows. 
which uh, resemble the way uh, a vineyard is plowed and planted. It's not straight, but it's semicircular in order to allow the grapes to get the angle of the sun, etc. So that's why it was called kerem. However, the other uh, the other uh, meaning of kerem that that is also apparent here is that was the vineyard of God. It was the vineyard of the Lord, and that's why they called it kerem biavne. And from it, they uh, fully expected and they were successful in rebuilding the Jewish people. As you all know, there's a yeshiva today, and yet the current uh, the current uh, kibbutz at Yavne is next to the Arab village of Yibne. And the Arab village of Yibne is on the archaeological site, is on the ruins of the ancient city of Yavne. And therefore, the yeshiva that was established outside of the kibbutz naturally took for itself the name uh, Kerem Biavne. As I mentioned to you, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, who was the Nasi, died in the re- in the rebellion, and his son, Rabbi Gamliel the second, or as he is known, Rabbi Gamliel of Yavne, should have become the Nasi. However, for a uh, a major period of time, about 20 years, he remained in hiding. Because even though the Romans had guaranteed, Vespasian had guaranteed that he was not going to execute the members of the royal family, the members of the House of Hillel, they uh, didn't quite take him at face value. They were frightened. And therefore, they remained in hiding. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai remained as not only the titular head, but the actual power of the Sanhedrin and of the Jewish people. And we find in the Mishnah and in the Talmud that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai uh, was very instrumental, was the most instrumental person in forming the Jewish nation during the time of the destruction and afterwards. I will give you in a few moments, uh, God willing, a number of examples of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and his uh, his outlook. Uh, an enormously talented person uh, and a, uh, a person that was able uh, through his personality to rally the Jewish people at its, at its, literally at its darkest moment in history. Now, Vespasian left for Rome. When he left for Rome, he left the army in charge of his son Titus, Titus. Now, what happened now is that three Jews uh, were advisors to Titus in the siege of Yerushalayim. One was Josephus Flavius, whom I mentioned to you last time, Yosef ben Matityahu HaKohen, who uh, in his uh, history book, The War of the Jews, uh, goes out of his way to point out that Titus was not such a bad fellow. And because of that, uh, that undoubtedly strengthened the opinion of the Jews that Josephus was a traitor. Josephus is a very, very complex person because he's a real Jew. I mean, there were Jews that that escaped to Rome and became Romans, and they they 
they uh, chucked all their Judaism. That was not the case with Josephus. Josephus remained a uh, an observant person, observant of the mitzvahs. He saw himself as the defender of the Jewish community against uh, the attacks of the non-Jewish community in the Roman Empire. And he saw himself as a hero and not as a traitor. In other words, he maintains that things would have been far worse if it would not have been for him. And that he had influence with Titus. Uh, he even writes in his uh, book that Titus did not want to burn down the temple. And that the burning of the temple was an accident. We'll discuss that also in a few moments. But uh, he really is an apologist for Titus. So he was in the camp of the Romans. Agrippa II, the last king, who was allegedly the king of the Jews, and whose militia was part of the original rebellion, switched sides in the middle, and became an advisor to Titus, which you can imagine was certainly viewed as an act of treachery. And Agrippus uh, was later, Agrippa was later brought to Rome and rewarded and he marched in the triumph. But he and his family completely disappear from the scene. They are just outside the Jewish people. That's the end of Herod. Herod and his family out. And the third man was a man, Tiberius Alexander, who came from the city of Alexandria who was a Jew who gave up his Judaism and converted to Roman paganism, and who had the effrontery uh, in the year of the four Caesars to uh, proclaim himself as the emperor of Rome. It's a little like uh, Barry Goldwater's joke. When he ran for president, Goldwater said that if he wins, he'll be the first Jew that ever became president of the United States, and he's an Episcopalian. <laughs> so here you would have a, a Jewish emperor of Rome who was a pagan. These three were the main counselors of Titus during the siege. And their counsel, their counsel was very correct. Their counsel was that the Romans need not knock themselves out, let the Jews kill themselves out. The Jews are going to do such a good job on themselves that the Romans will only come in and pick up the pieces, which is practically what happened. Now, Rome used the siege of Jerusalem to test new war machinery. It's not unlike Middle East wars that we have unfortunately seen in our time that have been proving grounds for major new weapon systems of the superpowers. Except that then the uh, Romans had perfected their siege machines, the battering rams, the catapults, the Roman towers in which they filled up the tower with as many as a thousand soldiers and were able to pull it to the wall. And the Romans, Titus was interested, as all generals are interested, not so much in and the cost in terms of men, he was interested in the, in the technology and how it would work. And therefore, 
uh, late in the year 69, he uh, brought uh, the battering rams and siege towers to the walls. And they destroyed the outside wall, then they destroyed the second wall. And then he laid siege to the city in such a way that the hunger and pestilence uh, just raged throughout the city. While this was happening, the Jewish generals inside the city were still fighting with themselves, slaughtering each other. And then finally the Romans tightened the siege and continued to tighten the siege. And in the uh, spring of the year 70, they were at the last wall, and the wall was breached in Tammuz of the year 70. The Romans fought their way through the city. The uh, defense was fierce. It was absolute. It was suicide squads, kamikaze. The Romans suffered enormous casualties and uh, in hand-to-hand fighting in the cities. And the Roman policy was to destroy all the homes, to level everything. And therefore, the city was being destroyed as the Roman army marched closer and closer to the temple. And eventually, the Romans achieved the uh, breakthrough. They were able to surround the fortress of Antonius, which guarded the temple. And they were able to come to the temple walls themselves. Josephus, in his book, uh, states the fact that Titus, apparently through the Jews, was well aware of the significance of the ninth day of Ov. That that historically was the day of the destruction of the temple. And therefore he held back the final uh, assault till that day, till the afternoon of the ninth day of Av, when the walls to the temple were breached. And according to Josephus, there was a, uh, that, uh, that Titus had given orders not to burn the temple. Now, the temple was a fireproof building. The temple was built out of marble, out of stone. It was a fireproof building. There was very little in it that could burn. Our rabbi saw the burning of the temple as a miraculous uh, type of occurrence. And they said that the uh, that God vented his wrath, so to speak, on the stones and on the bricks rather than on the people. The temple, the physical destruction of the temple... Uh, Serve to uh, save the people from a destruction which otherwise they would have been uh, apparently guilty and uh, it would have happened to them. Uh, Josephus says that there was there were tremendous tapestries, uh, beautiful tapestries that Herod had made for the temple and that hung along the walls of the temple. And that these tapestries, there was a Roman soldier who took a torch and threw it against the tapestries and that the tapestries caught fire and when they caught fire according to Josephus the Romans attempted to put out the fire they brought the bucket brigades with water but because of the siege there was not sufficient water that could be brought to the temple mount and that somehow the building took the the fire was so intense that that even the stone and the marble took hold 
and that the building collapsed. He says that it, in the Talmud we have that also, that it burned not only the night, the, the late afternoon of the 9th, and the night of the 10th, but it burned the entire day of the 10th also. It was just a raging conflagration that, that they were unable to stem. In fact, in the Talmud we have the opinion that there was an opinion that perhaps uh, the day of the destruction should be remembered as the tenth day of Av and not the ninth day of Av. Because the building was actually destroyed on the tenth. I mean, the major conflagration was on the tenth. However, since it started on the ninth, and because of the connection with the destruction of the first temple, so the ninth remained and remains the uh, the memorial day, the fast day for the Jewish people for the destruction of both temples. But they were unable to put out the fire. And the entire temple burned. According to Josephus, thousands of Jews burned with it. And that many of the defenders committed suicide, jumped into the flames of the temple, feeling that if the temple was going, the Jewish people were going. That it was all over anyway. And therefore they wanted to die with the temple. We will see that there was a, a large uh, movement literally of suicide. The, des the desperation and the despair was of such great uh, uh, emphasis among the Jewish people. It existed so strongly that you have thousands and thousands of Jews committing suicide, which is, uh, relatively speaking, not a Jewish response to trouble. Mostly the zealots. The Prushim, got, the Prushim intended to live to another day. The Prushim followed Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's uh, lead, and they were, even though they were uh, devastated by the destruction of the temple, they were not willing to write uh, the end of the Jewish people. We see that this is what happens at Matsada that the uh, last defenders, the almost 1,000 people, men, women, and children, uh, kill themselves rather than fall into Roman captivity. The Prussian were willing to undergo the Roman yoke because they felt that they would, they would be able to see to it that the Jewish people survived. But the defenders, the zealots, the Sikrik and the army, the militia, and the Kohanim, many of the Kohanim, they were completely destroyed by the destruction of the temple, and they died with the temple. The only uh, piece of the temple that we have left, of the entire temple compound that we have left, is the uh, fragment of the western wall uh, that uh, was the wall to the uh, outer courtyard, to the, to the temple area, to the temple mount itself. With the destruction of the temple, with the destruction of the temple, the Romans continued to uh, mount a, a war of extermination against the Jews, to uproot them from wherever they were. And the, uh, they uh, moved south and conquered the fortress of Herodian, which still was in Jewish hands. There was one other Jewish fortress in Transjordan, which the Romans crossed and destroyed. Yes. And then the final last place that was controlled by the Jews was the fortress of Masada. And the fortress of Masada was commanded by Elazar ben Yair, 
one of the leaders of the Sikrikun. Now the other two leaders, Shimon Bar Giora and Yochanan Gush Chalav, were captured by Titus. And Titus will bring them together with the relics of the temple, etc. He'll bring them to Rome. And they will uh, participate in the triumph, uh, marching in chains, being dragged through the streets of Rome. And then Shimon Bar Giora will be killed, executed publicly in the Colosseum. And Yochanan Gushkalav uh, was sentenced to spend the rest of his life in hard labor. He also died a few years later in the Roman dungeons. But Elazar ben Yair escaped from Jerusalem and together with about a thousand people uh, escaped to Matsada. And there, uh, there he was uh, surrounded by Roman forces and a three-year siege ensued. If you've been to Matsada, you can see the remnants of the great Roman ramp that was built up the sheer face of the cliff. The Romans used Jewish slaves, 30,000 Jewish slaves, to build that ramp. So that they put the defenders in the awful uh, dilemma of, uh, in order to stop the ramp, they had to kill their own brethren. And the uh, the situation uh, the situation deteriorated until finally in seventy three the ramp was almost complete. It was obvious that the Romans would assault and win. Elazar ben Yair, in the famous story again, is recorded in Josephus, uh, called a meeting of everybody on Matsada and said, "We are not going to be slaves to Rome." If we cannot be freed, then we're going to commit suicide. And that's what they did. They killed everyone on Matsada. When the Romans came in the morning, they found only corpses. Now, in, uh, in uh, I don't know how to put it, but it, some t- somehow the Matsada complex is represented as being very heroic. It sounds dramatic and it has a great deal of heroism to it, but the uh, the traditional Jewish viewpoint and the, and the viewpoint of the rabbis of the times was that it was uh, a very bad pun, but it was dead wrong. It was just not the way to handle it. And it was a useless, uh, futile act that was destructive instead of really strengthening anything. And uh, it's only uh, in our time lately that the Matsada became uh, popular again uh, with such statements as Matsada will not fall again and, and statements, uh, bravado statements, which again appeal to the uh, dramatic and heroic part of the story, but really in history are not... They're not accurate, and they are not—they're uh, not very reassuring, even. Now, Titus collected. We have all of this again from Josephus. Titus, after the fall of Rome, uh, and his father was the emperor, so they decided to have a triumph. One of the—this was one of the greatest Roman parades, triumphs in the history of Rome. And uh, according to Josephus, they brought over 10,000 Jewish prisoners back with them. 
I mentioned they brought the two generals, Shimon Bar Giora and Yochanan Gush Chalav, and he also took the artifacts of the temple. Now, the second temple, as we know, did not have the ark, but he took the table, he took the menorah, and he took other golden and silver and all of the whatever he, whatever could be taken. And he uh, marched it in a tremendous parade and a tremendous triumph in the main square of Rome. And the Romans felt that this victory over the Jews was their major victory. You have to remember that even though the Jews were small people, and even though the country was a small country, it was the bitterest war that Rome had to fight. And it was the war that cost Rome the greatest proportion of casualties, and therefore the victory over the Jews was celebrated as a tremendous military accomplishment. Titus succeeds his father as the emperor. His father does not live very long. By the year 73, 74, Titus is the emperor. And Titus built for himself a monument to the victory over the Jews, the Arch of Titus. It is a three-tiered gate that was the entrance at the entrance to the Roman Forum. The Arch of Titus still stands until today. One of the it's uh, it's no accident in history that both the Western Wall and the Arch of Titus have survived these uh, 1900 years in spite of all of the Rome has been sacked a dozen times in between and Jerusalem has, uh, has seen its share of destruction since that these two monuments of stone so to speak uh, remain and, uh, for viewing today on the top of the Arch of Titus you have the famous uh, sculpture the relief work, boss relief work, which shows uh, the Jews being taken into captivity, the picture of the menorah, the picture of the shofros of the long trumpets, of the chatzotzros, and the, uh, the entire scene of uh, Titus attempted to portray for us the scene how it, as it looked uh, on the day of the parade in Rome. What happened to all of the things? Now, that's a good question. Uh, the Talmud tells us that uh, 40, 50 years later, meaning uh, about 70 years after the destruction of the temple, Rabbi Yossi said that he was in Rome and that he saw yet displayed the great parochas, the great curtain, which separated between the in the in the uh, building of the temple, the actual building, so it separated between the holy of holies and the and the building itself. So there was this enormous uh, curtain tapestry that hung. He said he saw it in Rome, and uh, apparently the Romans kept it as a uh, as they kept many of the artifacts as booty and on display, etc. When Rome was taken over by the Christians, 
as will happen in, uh, in about the year 330, 250 years afterwards. So the uh, Catholic Church fell heir to all of these possessions of the temple. Now, where they are and what happened to them, it's not clear. Uh, they could have all been destroyed when Rome was sacked. They could have all been lost in the Dark Ages. There is a tradition both among the Catholic Church and among Jews that somewhere in the catacombs in the basements of the Vatican the, there are artifacts of the temple which still exist. As late as the 18th century, uh, there was a Jew by the name of the Chidor, Rabbeinu Chaim Yosef David Azulai, who was a, uh, he was a fundraiser sent from Jerusalem to collect money. But like many fundraisers, he, uh, he didn't go for the work. So he, uh, he went and visited libraries all over the world. We will, uh, possibly get to the remainder of this next week, but I want to thank Rabbi Wine for, uh, presenting the, uh, two segments today as we get set to close out today's show. Great programming continues all day long, and tomorrow Nakam will be in, uh, and three-week programming continues. We'll be here live next week on Tish Above with appropriate programming for, for the day. Thanks, everyone. Uh, wish you a good day, a good week, and we'll see you next week right here on JM Sunday on the Nakam Siegel Network.